0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you've ever seen Holbein's magnificent painting, The Ambassadors, painted in 1533 and now hanging at the National Gallery in London you'll have glimpsed inside the palace of Bridewell. Bridewell Palace on the Thames was just south of Fleet Street and St Bride's Church, and it was built by Cardinal Thomas Wolsey for Henry VIII. And in the early 1520s, the king used it as one of his main London homes. In the 1530s, after Wolsey died, the palace was leased to the French ambassador. And after Henry VIII's death, it took on another function altogether. So to discuss Bridewell and its later inhabitants, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Duncan Scalkeld. Mm-hmm. Duncan is Professor Emeritus of Shakespeare and Renaissance Literature at the University of Chichester and Visiting Professor at the University of Rahampton. And he's one of those exemplary literary scholars who historicise their work. He's an absolute expert on Shakespeare's world. And his books include Shakespeare Among the Courtesans and his latest is Shakespeare in London, which draws out historical details of London life in Shakespeare's time. So may we start there, Duncan? Can you give us a snapshot of the London that Shakespeare knew?
1: Well, thank you very much. The London Shakespeare knew well, his early plays seem to have this sense of excitement and adventure of a new arrival in a big city looking round and the person usually ends up falling in love and some kind of chaotic hilarity follows. Shakespeare probably was very excited at the thought of going to London. After all, a very famous Stratford person had already done that. Sir Hugh Clopton, who was a textile trader and became mayor of London and in fact built a new place, which Shakespeare later bought. And so I think Shakespeare must have found London a bit of a wonder, really, at first. Bigger than Stratford, imposing buildings. The Thames, much bigger than the Avon And it's quite possible, actually, that he visited London even as early as 1589. His father would have made some trips now and then, sort of legal processes that indicate that. But my sense is that that excitement and sense of wonder fairly quickly wore off. Because much as we might think of London as a fairly quiet by comparison with today's vibrant, buzzing city... It was a vibrant, buzzing city in its own time, and it certainly was cosmopolitan. But of course, you wouldn't have the noise of traffic and aircraft and all the rest of it going on. But it was also a place of horrors. You'd cross London Bridge and see heads on pikes. In fact, when you went into London through one of the Posterns or Seven Gates of London, you again would see body parts displayed. So welcome to London wasn't really <laughs> that reassuring, I think. People carried rapiers quite openly pretty much everywhere. So you get in a pub quarrel and things could go very badly wrong.
0: As Marlowe shows us, of course.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, the circumstances out are a little bit murky, you know, whether it was a planned assassination. There is a parallel case, actually, to Marlowe with the player, the actor Richard Allen, and it's there in these records that I read, so we know that Richard Allen was stabbed over a dispute about the tavern reckoning. And this is 1601, a bit later than Marlowe. So
0: going to the pub was very dangerous.
1: <laughs> yeah, things can turn very unpredictably wild and dangerous or risky very suddenly.
0: So these records that you're talking of, these are records from Bridewell, aren't yeah. they? And I think for most of us, the name Bridewell conjures up an image of confinement. But it's not hmm. a prison as we think of it, is it? It's an extraordinary
1: story. It was originally built by Cardinal Wolsey between 1516 and twenty two, And it was kind of Wolsey's equivalent of Hampton Court. And it was going to stamp his power in the centre of London. The previous landowner was executed. So Wolsey just moved in, had this palace built. And of course Holbein's ambassadors is painted there. And so it's a cardinal's palace. It then gets confiscated by Henry VIII after Wolsey's decline around about 1530. And in fact, the negotiations over the divorce with Catherine of Aragon were held partly in Bridewell. So it was exclusively a royal palace. And then when Edward VI came to the throne after Henry's death, that was the chance of the Bishop of London, Nicholas Ridley. My sense is it really came out of the Reformation and there was a kind of radical Christianity built into the Reformation, which wanted to improve social policy. Now, I don't know for certain, but what Ridley does in his letter to the king, pretty much, and in his sermon at St Paul's, he says, Look, Master Christ lies naked and starving in the streets, echoing the gospels, and says, We've got to do something about this. Can we please have Bridewell Palace to house the indigent, vagrant poor? And Edward VI, being a good young prot, as he were, says, Yeah, sure. Almost Edward's last act. And I wonder if it was the dissolution of the monasteries. That meant poor people flooded in. The charitable work of the monasteries was no longer happening. London streets were filling up, and then this supposedly Charitable Hospital is founded in 1553 alongside Christ Hospital for Orphans and St Thomas's Hospital refounded and Bethlehem re-founded as well, 1553. So you've got this coordinated social policy. Bridewell for the poor, St Thomas's for the sick, Bedlam for the insane, it could only house about 30 people, and Christ Hospital for Orphans, all at the same time. And I don't think anything quite like that social policy happened until the 19th century.
0: That's really interesting. And you're right, it's a really interesting intervention in social policy. So Bridewell is for the poor. Is that right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the poor and the idle. You see, Bridewell became an institution. It was run by a subcommittee under the Mayor of London. And it was run mainly by aldermen. There were six aldermen appointed, and then there were elected officials as well who ran it as magistrates. And the idea was that it was a charitable endeavour. It was like a job training scheme, YTS or something. You know, you get the poor people who've got no skills and get them into bridewell, get them making bricks or weaving fustian or beating hemp or making nails. And you've given them a trade. they got a basic trade. That was the idea. It was charitable in its conception initially. But of course it became one of the most feared London prisons with a terrible reputation.
0: How does it go from being this place of intended benevolence to becoming (laughs) the most feared London prison? What
1: happened? Probably right at the start, it established its own court. And that was probably the problem because being idle, being a masterless man, was pretty much a whippable offence. You could be hauled in by a constable or a beadle for being an idle loitering knave. Now, you might not have been an idle loitering knave, but if the constable or beadle says you are, well, you're an idle loitering knave. Uh, (laughs) And very often, when Bridewell was faced with crimes, it just saw the crime. So, If a woman is pregnant out of wedlock, she's committed a crime. They will whip the guy who's done it if they can find him, unless he pays some money, in which case he can probably go free. But they will also tie a pregnant woman to a whipping post and lash her because she's committed the crime.
0: When she's pregnant?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes they'll be generous and wait until she's seen her term through. But very often, I could give you several examples of women who are found with child punished and then delivered. This is the London that Shakespeare's inhabiting. And it's actually the prison that he represents in Measure for Measure. There's a big story behind that.
0: So this is a very alien world to us, this world where for being a vagrant, for having sex outside of marriage, one can be punished. So this is done all under law, is it? Or is it a sort of jump-started of a kind of institution?
1: It is a start-up, there's no doubt about it. And one thing that Bridewell didn't do was hang people, It didn't execute. So if you did go to Bridewell, the best that could happen would, you'd be let off. And sometimes they will say no evidence was brought against her, he or she can go free. That happens pretty rarely, I have to say. It likes to whip people quite a lot. And you get these lines in King Lee that seem to resonate with the whipping chamber of Bridewell. Hold thy hand, thou beadle. And so because it only saw the crime, it was very rarely merciful. They almost felt they had a judicial role to play. All they could do is deter, because the population, let's say, was 200,000 in around about 1,600. It could only house about 200 inmates. But the worst thing that could happen is you'd starve to death there, because the people who ran it didn't really care that much. So when you get orders for diet for the poor in this house which you do some porridge in the morning some beef in the evening you know that that's been ordered because people are starving people are dying and actually there's an outcry we only get this filtered through the magistrates actually but st thomas's complain that starving naked people from bridewell are ending up at st thomas's because they're near death there are quite a few examples of people starving in bridewell being famished
0: so who are the people that they're interested in? They're interested in the idol, the vagrant, they're interested in women who are sexually active outside of marriage. Are there others?
1: All kinds of knaves. So cut purses. They are aware that there are gangs of cut purses that they hear from various kinds of testimony are located outside the city, in the fields, in the windmills, So night walkers. You don't have to be an active prostitute to be a night walker. If you're just found by the neighbourhood watch, you know, Dogbury and Elbow and his mate from the place, if you're arrested by the watch, then you're brought in and you're female, then the presumption is that you are soliciting or you're out after curfew. Idle people and small thefts. I mean, let's face it, if you look in the Middlesex County Sessions records, you can see cases of fairly young people who happened to steal a pot from a tavern ending up being hanged. So at least that didn't happen at Bridewell. If you stole a pot, you know, you'd be whipped for it sometimes well-whipped with rods. And, you know, I've been trying to calculate how many lashes it would have involved, but for really serious repeated offences, they'll do up to 100 lashes. When it says he was well-whipped with rods, I don't know what that is.
0: Do they generally provide some sense of whether people survive these whippings or their fate after that point, or do they just disappear from the records?
1: It usually says punished and delivered, so they're discharged. And that means they're off the institution's hands. The institution doesn't have to feed them, doesn't have to set them to work. Of course, you've got these arts masters, these people they employ to run a group of apprentices, making bricks, making nails, making fustian cloth and beating hemp. So you've got these forms of work. I mean, it's not far short of an Elizabethan labour camp. You know, it's a kind of gulag with a charitable <laughs> mission statement <laughs> that just goes horribly wrong.
0: So tell us a bit about what we can learn of individuals from the records of these cases.
1: Their names are given and then some testimony about them, either an accusation or something they're asked to give some account of themselves. I'd suppose most of the people who go through Brideway it filters about 2,000 people a year by their own records, probably a bit more than that actually. And sometimes you get repeat offenders or people who come in and again and again and again or are named repeatedly. So we can track their lives over a period of time. Women stand out in it. Quite a lot of women who are working as prostitutes in early modern London. Jane Tross is the most salient example. Jane Tross is without question the most unruly woman in London in the 1570s. She's been married when we first encounter her in 1574, and then we last hear of her around about 1578 79 when she disappears. But just before she goes off, because the records actually have a gap after 1579 till 1597, they bring Jane Tross's father in and say, Please, can you take her out of the city? Because Bridewell can't even contain her. She breaks out of prison, she escapes, she beats the matron, she beats the other workers, she screams, she shouts, she swears, horrible, filthy swearing she's accused of, she's whipped, they whip her again, they do it again... She still comes back. She's locked in the cage. She breaks out of the cage. She bribes a guy with her body to break out. And she's got a cap and she's got a couple of coins and a feather. And they've confiscated her stuff and she wants it back. And there is a story that she escaped out of the prison by climbing down sheets. That's not the case. Alice Furs is another who turns up in court in her slippers and talks about an Italian whom she calls her love. There's a prostitute from Stratford-on-Avon called Elizabeth Evans. In 1598, Shakespeare almost certainly would have known of her. And she's really interesting. She's about to be whipped. It's a terrifying moment for her. And she's cool as you like. And she signs her name beautifully. A bit like a queen, almost like because it's Elizabeth. Elizabeth there in beautiful loops on the E. Calm as you like. Because Sir William Howard is in court, brother to the Lord High Admiral. And he claims that she is akin to him. She's not akin to him. I think she's something else to him.
0: And so she knows that he will operate on her behalf.
1: Yeah, and the court can't do anything about it. They've got all these witness statements. They've got all the evidence. You know, they know exactly the kind of person Elizabeth Evans was. A Stratford girl, daughter of a cutler who was executed for coining
0: making counterfeit coins in other words. So what are these women being accused of in the first place and what's this process of witness statements against them? What's the process of gathering evidence? Sometimes
1: they're accused of the abominable sin of whoredom, which will just mean sex outside marriage. Men are accused of rape. There are cases of men involved with child abuse in these cases, really awful. And women are accused of being out late at night Or sometimes the watch will raid a house and they'll feel the bed to see if the bed's warm. (laughs) Evidence. And there are some funny moments, like there's a Thomas Kidd. Thomas Kidd is in love with Eleanor Gilderson, but the trouble is Eleanor Gilderson is already married. So anyway, he brings her roast meats in the fields and whistles and little gifts. And then one time they're in a chamber together and the watch knock on the door. And so he quickly hides under her bed and there's another example of a sort of brothel madam who's got a visitor with her and the watch come and he hides under the bed and by that means actually they escape. So you get these cases that seem to us a little bit amusing although for the people involved at the time I'm not sure they were all that fun. Mm,
0: yes so I have very similar cases that I've worked on for the same period but in France and the elders are lay people who are almost self-appointed really, and who make it their business to wander around and spy at early hours of the morning or to report on rumours and evidence. Who are the watch in this case?
1: They are good, honest neighbours. You know, Shakespeare satirises them in Much Ado About Nothing and in Measure for Measure. They might be led by a constable, so there's about 130, is it, constables in London, each with their own beat or precinct. It's kind of hard not to find them amusing because they come across as busybodies, but actually Shakespeare represents them as kind of rather ignorant and cack-handed and clumsy and ridiculous. And to be honest with you, I think they were. They weren't very educated people, very often these members of the watch. And very often they neglected their duties. So you do get in the Bridewell records, you get orders for constables. Attend to your duties, do not neglect, you know, arrest people. And it seems that they weren't. They were falling asleep on the job.
0: Were they paid
1: or is this
0: just a voluntary thing?
1: I think if they were, Bridewell doesn't record them. The constables were certainly in a feed post. I wonder if the neighbours of the watch, it was a community duty that they were expected to undertake.
0: Yes, that seems likely. I mean, busybodies is a charitable thing to say about people who walk around and spot other people's misdemeanours and know that by reporting them, these people might end up being brutalised to the point of death. I mean, that's a kind thing to say
1: about them. I mean, the Beatles were just awful people. You know, they were bastards. They were walking around with clubs you know, Mr. Bumble of Oliver Twist is not very far, I think, from the reality. I don't think they're being misrepresented. It's difficult to know sometimes, isn't it, how far people took their Christianity and how they resolved these dilemmas between justice and mercy within their own private morality. You know, I don't want to say that these are all just brutes, Because neighbours might be of the middling sort, they might be shopkeepers, and nobody wants their windows broken in. People don't own very much, for a starter, so the small amount they do have, you know, if it gets stolen, that matters. So I understand that. I mean, that is undoubtedly the case, that cruelty was rife. My impression of that time and that world is that it was mostly cruel, harsh. Yeah, nasty, brutish and short, a lot of the time, for most of the people.
0: I think you're right, though there is certainly a sense in which people are doing this out of a sense that their community, their society, is endangered by people behaving in criminal and sinful ways that actually through much of the sixteenth century we find you know people are scared that if they don't deal with the sinful people in their midst, then God will respond with wrath, you know pandemics and harvests that fail, and really quite serious things that affect the lives of others. so there is a community spirit even behind the prurience that goes on in these watches I suppose.
1: Yeah there are also some cases that seem to us funny today which are just prurient you know there's a case in May 1598 of Margaret Brown who calls up her husband Henry who's a brown baker and she says come and look at this and they're looking through a crack in their wall into the chamber of the house next door where Clement Underhill is making merry with Michael Flood who is not her husband her husband is away and They overhear what's said. And Clement Underhill says to him, eat no more cheese, for that it will make your gear short. And I mean to have a good turn of you soon. And so it goes on. And sometimes you get this sort of voice in the records. You know, this is actually one of the most detailed cases. And at the end of it, you know, after they've had their time together, Underhill and Flood, which is quite detailed, the record says he plucked up her clothes, she plucked them higher. (laughs) So anyway, it ends with a chink of glasses as they drink beer together. And she says, here now, I drink to thee. Now, this is all filtered through Margaret Brown, who's watching through a chink in the wall. Her husband isn't interested. But in a way... When you read that, you think, well, okay, it sounds a bit funny. It sounds like a farce and it's quite a funny story to tell. But in a way, it makes the reader prurient. The reader is looking through a chink, if you like, through history. And in a way, it's sort of caught a little bit in that dilemma of how we respond to this stuff. It can be very funny, but it's distressing. Sometimes you can think you're in a kind of English bedroom farce with these records, but actually we're not.
0: That's an interesting point, actually, because... It's true that what we're getting is these chinks, as you say, we're getting this moment of looking through these fissures into the period, into the society. But we are looking, generally speaking, at some moment of social breakdown, something has gone wrong, or we're looking into their intimate lives And I mean, obviously, tabloids and gossip magazines might disagree, but I think many of us would feel that some of that isn't our business. And yet it's the only way we access these people from the past. And at some level, we're kind of interested in how these people lived and what their intimate lives were. But it's only the distance of 400 or so years that allows us to do that. So there's a kind of complicated ethical question there. And then there's also the fact we're getting it filtered, as you say, through Margaret Brown in this case, and then through the scribe who wrote it down. And so we're having it at several times removed, aren't we? How do you deal with that?
1: Because these were written down and then copied up by a clerk, sometimes you get the original copy, you get the first draft that hasn't been deleted or thrown away. And the case of Margaret Aparis, by the sound of it a Welsh woman, is given in 1574 and the questions that are asked of her are also recorded. It's the first draft and so we get almost the entire process of the magistrate speaking and asking her questions and her voice comes across as quite timid and quiet We can only sort of imagine that, obviously, because we can't replay the moment. But we are reading the black ink on the yellowing page that is 400 years old. So we are proximate to the writing, if not to the event itself. Later on in the early 17th century, there's a case of a fight and the wife is shouting to her husband, kill him, my love, kill him. <laughs> you know, and you get a different kind of voice. But I wanted to mention, one of the things that interests me is also the nature of fragments. Sometimes you get a bit of a life in just a line. So here's one from 1604. Joan Helica, which I think is a Cornish name, being with child, caught stealing milk from a cow in Islington Fields, not punished, but delivered. So what desperation is there in Joan Helica caught stealing milk from a cow? You know, she's with child, she's alone, possibly itinerant on the road, incredibly vulnerable, possibly starving. And there's another case that really stands out to me, 1604, I think it is, 1605, Francis Hudson. And you get in three or four lines an entire biography She's with child out of wedlock by John Gaul, Dutchman. He's gone away to sea. She has dressed herself in man's apparel and so would have followed him. Punished.
0: And she was punished for what she wore or for being pregnant outside of marriage or both?
1: All of these, being vagrant, being caught in man's apparel, being pregnant outside wedlock, trying to steal on board a ship and so would have followed him, that kind of thing. Her intention is a kind of crime. So it's all rolled into one, and yet in those four or five lines is the story of All's Well That Ends Well, where Helena seeks out Bertram and crosses borders in order to find him and ends up quick with his child. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
0: So I'm totally fascinated by these fragments, these moments where we have, I mean, they've been called by Vern Harris archival slithers, where we just have this little anecdote, this fragment, as you say, these few lines. And that is all that exists of these people for posterity. That's all that we know of them.
1: Yeah. Bill Ingram calls them scraps of information. They are resonant, aren't they? You know, what was Joan Helica's story? And we think of the black people also recorded in the registers. What was their story? Because they are migrants. They've travelled a long way.
0: Yes, let's talk about the cultural diversity of London, because you do have certain people who appear in the Bridewell records, don't you, who are clearly of African heritage.
1: Absolutely. And usually the Bridewell magistrates will record them as blackamoors. So we know sometimes they'll use the words a-negro, Philip Moore, a Negro who dwelleth in Southwark and useth to sell brooms. I just love this idea. This guy's got a little business running, but he's fallen on hard times and he's caught begging. I don't think he was punished, but there's Augustina Patra. She's caught running away from Lady Barclay several times. She's run away diverse times. She's punished. But Lady Barclay, by reputation, was quite a cruel mistress. So I wonder if Augustina Patra, you know, you do wonder, don't you, Cleopatra? So we'd love to know more about these lives. Where did these people come from? What are their stories? Several other examples. I mean, Imtiaz Habib is the guy who did all the work on parish registers and really dug out the presence of Africans and people of colour in early modern London. And the Bridewell records just add a few more examples.
0: One of those examples is Black Luce that you've written about. Tell us about Black okay. Luce. Yeah.
1: Well, we don't know that Black Luce was a blackamoor. There are references to Black Jack. You would think there would be... but It sounds so Dickensian, doesn't it? So maybe this is just an epithet, you know, meaning evil or of notorious reputation. Black Luce lives in Clerkenwell. She's mentioned in lots and lots of prosecutions... Of people. She's a brothel madam and she's very often called an arrant whore and a board or a notable whore and a board. She runs a brothel in Clerkenwell, north west London, and she is in business in association with Gilbert East and his wife Margaret, but particularly Gilbert East, who's described as a terrible person. who None worse in the world, says one of the people giving testimony about them. That's of Gilbert East. Gilbert East lives in Turnmill Street, which you can still walk up. You come out of Farringdon Station and you can walk straight up Turnmill Street to the Clark's Well at Clarkenwell. Well. So we don't know if Black Luce lived on Turnmill Street, which was the notorious red light district. It is actually a myth that the South Bank of the Thames, Bankside or Southwark, was a place of carnivalesque sexual license. It absolutely was not. There were five prisons in Southwark, and there are very, very few prosecutions from 1559 to 1610 of people in Southwark for sexual offences. Obviously, the stews did exist under Henry VIII, but they were closed down or shut down pretty much and became ordinary residences where people lived, including Shakespeare's brother, Edmund. And then Gilbert East becomes Philip Henslow's bailiff or henchman or enforcer, probably a rent collector and enforcer, and there's there in Henslow's diary. Black Loose is never prosecuted. Gilbert East is, and he's punished as well for running a brothel. He's a pretty nasty man. He beats his wife, forces her to serve as a prostitute as well. And a lot of the prostitutes in the house of Gilbert East and then in Black Loose's house are itinerant. They're going between different houses in London, which possibly keeps them safer from the law because the law can't kind of track where they're going. Well, Black Lucy is very interesting because she's named as Lucy Negro in 1594 in the Jester Grey Aurum, and she's named as present in Grey's Inn in 1594 on the 20th of December. Eight days later, Shakespeare plays the comedy of errors in Grey's Inn, right there in that hall. And there are knights, there are lords and ladies present. We don't know which ladies. We don't know if Black Luce was there on the 28th of December when Comedy of Errors was performed, but she was there on the 20th. And she is also mentioned in two other plays. So Jester Grey or Edward Fourth, by Thomas Hayward and Barnaby Barnes, The Devil's Charter of 1606. So she's around in the public imagination, Black Luce.
0: You said that we can't conclude that she was a black woman yeah. and that it may have been an epithet but if she's also referred to as Lucy Negro or Nigra then that it's speculatively we would can probably suggest that she it was It sounds like it. So she's it? not yeah. somebody who's coming up in the witness statements we're getting snapshots of her through she's not being prosecuted but she's coming up in other people's witness statements.
1: Yeah, that's right. And just to follow that up when the Jester Graham uses the word negro elsewhere it means black people. So we don't know, you know, the jury's out on that.
0: The jury's also out, isn't it, on the idea that black loose might have been mentioned in Shakespeare's sonnets. I remember reading in your book, uh, Shakespeare Among the Courtiers, that it was first suggested back in 1933 by one G.B. Harrison, that black loose was a candidate for Shakespeare's dark lady. How convinced are you of that? Or what do you make of it?
1: Some people think that we should abandon this sort of search for historical identities behind the sonnets altogether. And I can understand that point of view, although a careful reader of the sonnets is not likely to come away thinking the sonnets are just fictional. They do seem to be deeply personal and intensely felt, almost embarrassingly personal at times. And they're absolutely far out, as it were. They're radical. They're so, so interesting, fresh, modern, contemporary. I mean, Shakespeare is besotted with the young man of the sonnets. He adores him. In Sonnet 27, after a long travel, he says, lights out, candles out, going to sleep. All I can see is the face of this young man. Now, whatever we say about Shakespeare representing blackness elsewhere, in the sonnet, he creates what someone once said to me was a black aesthetic and I've never really forgotten that phrase, he connects blackness with art and blackness with beauty. He says beauty herself is black. Well, hang on a minute. What do you mean? Well, beauty isn't actually white skin and golden hair coming out of a clamshell or a oyster shell. It's actually black. How extraordinary.
0: And it's clear that this is not just black hair, because certainly when he talks about raven black eyes, but hair like black wires, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, black wires grow on her head, but why then her breasts are done. There's no doubt that Shakespeare is attracted to a brown-skinned woman. That is incontrovertible. I don't think that's disputed, really. The question you're not really supposed to ask is who was that person? (laughs) Because there are various candidates. And the short answer is we don't know. That's true. But it's worth looking at the evidence just to check that we still don't know and because we might find out more. And it does seem to me that Black Luce is so in the public imagination in the 1590s, all the way through to 1603, 1604, well, Barnaby Barnes, even, 1606. Would Shakespeare have written about a woman who behaves like a prostitute? She is the bay wherein all men ride. Remember, Black Lucy's surname is actually Bainum. I mean, I don't know whether this is a play on words or not. Let's suppose it's not. Nevertheless, she is at the end of Sonnet 144. Shakespeare writes she will fire his good angel out. In other words, she will pass on a venereal infection to his friend. And if you read carefully the Catherine Duncan-Jones' Arden III edition of the sonnets and Colin Burroughs' Oxford edition of the sonnets, the notes that they give show the ways in which this dark lady of the sonnets is connected constantly through those poems to criminality and to ideas of judicial punishment.
0: Let's go back then to the records, because your reference of Shakespeare's fascination with the young man Reminds me that I wanted to ask you whether we see any evidence here of people being prosecuted for sodomy, for homosexual acts.
1: Yeah, they're not often, but sometimes they will say brought in for the abominable sin of buggery. They will use that term. They don't tend to use the word sodomy
0: That's an earlier usage, is it? Because that's used in Henry VIII's time. Yeah. Is it a capital offence? Yes, 1542, and that Walter Hungerford is the first man to be executed for it, although he's done other things as well, so one could argue that he's accused on multiple charges.
1: I wouldn't want to say that sodomy is never used in the Bride Warrior. I'm pretty sure it is there somewhere. Usually it's denounced as kind of like the detestable vice of something like that, or the abominable sin of sometimes someone is accused of a deed not meet to be written. And you do have to be very careful when you read these old records. I mean, I nearly went into print with William Bilton brought in for that his fart was abominable and vile. (laughs) Now, you'll know how they wrote C's and R's and they're easily confused. It was his fact, his deed that was abominable and vile. (laughs)
0: It's easily done. It's easily done.
1: But, uh, you know, that was in the early days of reading this stuff. (laughs) And I thought...
0: It was so bad that he
1: he was criminalised for it. Well, it was his fact. It was his deed. We don't know what that deed was, but it might well have been homosexual act. Of course, we get cases of women lying together, maidservants sharing a bed. And, you know, we mustn't think that this is obviously or necessarily sexual, nor that it wasn't particularly. We don't really know. Valerie Traub is the wonderful critic who's written best about that.
0: It's fascinating. The other thing this is bringing to mind is work by someone like Sadia Hartman. Her book from a couple of years ago, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, as people around me know because I've been fascinated by it recently, examines, among other things, the records from state reformatories in American cities in the early 20th century. And there are so many parallels, Duncan, it's fascinating. Between 1882 and 1925, young black women could be imprisoned if they were judged in danger of becoming morally depraved. And that's a conclusion that, that could be reached if they had sex outside of marriage or they went out after dark or they went drinking and dancing. And the interesting thing is that Hartman writes about how the archive itself is full of fictions and fabrications, you know, fibs basically. And so she wrestles with the difficulty of those being the only records we have about these women. And we only know them through this archive, but the archive is an unreliable witness And I was thinking about what you were saying about prostitutes or whoredom. And, well, two questions here, really. One, how do you respond to the challenges of the archive in that regard? Does it frustrate you that you can't access the interiority of these women? And the other question is to think about prostitution and the fact that so many women are being called whores just for having sex. How do you ever get at this as somebody's profession?
1: Take the first one first. Of course, we can't be naive about these records. They are filtered, they're clerked. But sometimes we can hear what we think might be the voice of the deponent or the person giving the testimony. And the question is can we trust it? Sometimes we can't. And undoubtedly, neighbours lied about each other nevertheless when they're brought into bridewell they face a very severe punishment from which they could languish in pain they could die very painfully from it so there is a huge pressure on them it's in their interest to tell the truth because if they're caught lying it's going to be a lot worse so generally speaking my sense is that people absolutely bare their souls they're in terror quite often when they make these depositions. They know very bad things are going to happen, they can be locked away. To be honest with you, if a constable drags you in and says you're a caitiff and a knave, you might say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not a caitiff and a knave, but if you can't bring friends into court to back you up, they might decide that by the look of you, yep, you're a caitiff and a knave. So my feeling is actually you can trust these records quite a bit because the premium on telling the truth is so high, or the benefit for just saying, "Okay, yeah, it was me, sorry. And some drop to their knees and beg, cry, and beg for forgiveness. And just occasionally they might receive some sympathy, especially if someone can speak for them. So there's that. So I don't find the Bridewell Archive inherently untrustworthy. You know, I find it full of interesting valuable information you have to weigh up okay well what are these circumstances are we able to rely upon the details of what we're being told and sometimes you just have to say these are the details that I'm being told you know that's the statement it's the book on Bridewell that's waiting to be written.
0: I think the Bridewell records are absolutely fascinating from everything you've told us they give us such extraordinary insights let me pick up then on this question about prostitution Because the language is slippery. When they talk about whores, they may be talking about people who are acting in a professional capacity, or they may be talking about someone who's having sex outside of marriage. Is that a challenge for the Bridewell records as well?
1: Yes, it is. And it's a challenge for the magistrates because they don't have a very precise vocabulary. So sometimes they call them a strumpet or a whore or a night walker. They're quite interested in payment. If payment passed between sexual partners, then they're really on it. They see that as prostitution. And there are some women who are working as prostitutes very clearly. Anne Levens is one of the most striking examples. She's making a huge amount of money from prostitution, largely pimped by her brother, Christopher, who then becomes quite a prominent Southwark resident. I don't know whether Anne Levens ends up on the South Bank, but probably with him. But she's earning so much money that she can lend money to merchants. She's operating a small bank, and Elizabeth Evans was clearly working as a prostitute. So someone like Jane Tross will work or behave as a prostitute, but she's also just a roaring girl. You know, she is just a force of nature. So she's a bit more than that. Black Luce is also a businesswoman running a very effective brothel. You know, she's named in all of these prosecutions, but she has, and I quote, great guests. In other words, nobility. And because the nobility is turning up, well, I assume that's the reason, she's never, so far as we know, ever prosecuted. They can come after Gilbert East. They can come after all of her associates, the prostitutes she has in her house, Mary Dornley, Elizabeth Kirkman. Elizabeth Kelsey with a pearl in her ear. All of those get prosecuted and punished, but not herself. So these women are entrepreneurial, certainly. And of course, a lot of men in these records assume that a woman will go with them, you know, if they offer them something, a brooch or a ring. And loads of cases of men offering women marriage and then abandoning them. And that's the story of Measure for Measure. Angelo promised Mariana marriage and abandoned her. And Lucio did the same to Kate Keepdown. Mistress Overdone says, you know, he promised her marriage. And that phrase, actually, he promised her marriage, which is there in Measure for Measure, is absolutely everywhere in the Bridewell records. Of course, it's there in All's Well That Ends Well as well. You know, there are some women you can identify as prostitutes, definitely. I remember being at a conference and someone rather jokingly said to me, ah, oh, Duncan, your research is on prostitutes, hasn't it? You know, like this. And, and I thought, well, when you say prostitute, I say hungry, cold, vulnerable woman.
0: Yes, that's right, that we need to humanise and think about these people in their context is absolutely right and that's what makes your work on this so fabulous Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today I mean, I feel like we could spend the day talking about these cases It would be fun (laughs) It would be great But this has been a wonderful dive into some of these lives and some of the details of these records and it's been just wonderful to share your research Thank you so much
1: Thank you so much
0: You've been listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.